Oh, Heavenly Father, we celebrate your greatness this morning. We recall the words of your servant David speaking to us in Psalms long ago. 36 comes to mind our text last week where your servant declared forever and all time that your steadfast love is great. Your steadfast love, O Lord, it extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. And your justice is like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. Father, the scope of your steadfast love is so manifest to us that the heavens could not contain. Lord, the praise that ought to fill this universe at the sounding of your people from hearts redeemed, when they, quickened by the power of the Spirit, overflow with praise for what you have done. But not just the scope, O Lord. We celebrate today the value of your steadfast love that protects us, that sustains us, as it comes from an eternal source. And Father, when we consider that we, because of your grace alone, are the objects of your steadfast love. We are truly humbled, brought both to our knees in humility and brokenness, and then lifted to our feet in joyful praise and worship. I pray, Lord, that you would quicken within us a spirit of praise, glorious adoration for the testimony of your grace toward us. And now I pray that you would write on the tables of our heart that you would, Father, quicken and establish our understanding, so that as we open your Scriptures, we might better understand and better display the truth of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that we have received in our salvation. And for anyone that may not know you, I pray, Lord, if it would bring pleasure to your name, that your Holy Spirit might use even this service today to quicken in them, Father, the seed of faith, that they might bow before the Lordship of Christ and find there all the riches of glory eternal. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What a privilege to open up the Scriptures again this morning and to see what treasures there are in these words that Matthew records for us, for us to mine and to apply to our lives. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 13. And while you're turning there, I want to give you a brief context of overview leading up to this moment in Matthew's Gospel. The book of Matthew, as we've mentioned throughout this series, is organized around, perhaps we could say anyway, five great discourses or sermons by Jesus Christ our Lord. And here in Matthew chapter 13, we get to discourse number three. And this is the first discourse where we really see the device of parable parable employed by Christ, at least in Matthew's gospel, in its prominence for the first time. I've attempted to label the previous two messages by Christ in this book. The first one we've been calling Kingdom Constitution. And that's in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. The second one in Matthew chapter 10 is Kingdom Commission. And thirdly, I've attached to today's discourse that we'll begin to 
touched to some degree, at least in the introduction, kingdom comparisons. There are seven great parables within Matthew chapter 13. And that number itself we know is biblically significant. It often refers numerologically to God's order, His symmetry, His completion, His finality, His perfect nature. And so we have perfectly described for us, by comparison, seven ways to understand the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13. The first parable as it's given to us is the parable of the sower. And then there's an interjection and then the parable explained. The second parable, beginning in verse 24, is the parable of the weeds. Thirdly, mustard seed, verse 31. Fourthly, the parable of the leaven, verse 33. And as these parables are given with their explanation, we have parable number 5 following a brief explanation of hidden treasure in verse 44. The parable of the pearl of great price, verse 45. And then the chapter closes and discourse closes with the parable of the dragnet in 47 and following. That's a brief structure and overview of Matthew's record of Jesus' third great discourse. This discourse unfolds in seven parables. From the first parable, the parable of the sower, we find a foundational and sweeping scope in that explanation. As Jesus opens with the parable of the sower and the different kinds of soil, the seed, and everything that's connected to those ideas, we find there a real key for understanding many things in the book of Matthew and many things in Jesus' teaching. The remaining six parables that follow that first one can be arranged in pairs, and those are additionally insightful for giving us more ways to see how the kingdom of God is constituted, how it unfolds, and the different aspects of life in light of the truths of Scripture that Jesus is setting forth. Now, setting the stage for the theological significance of this method of teaching, namely parables, this morning I want to consider mostly, mainly, eight verses, Matthew thirteen ten through 17. Because you'll notice between verses 1 through 9, and then which gives the parable of the sower, as it were, and then the explanation of the parable, verses 18 through 23, there's something of an interjection where Jesus declares to the disciples some very interesting facts about the nature of parables and about the nature of their purpose and those who are listening to them, the nature of the hearers. We see here the stage is set for the theological significance of this method of teaching to be revealed to us in this insert of explanatory purposes. This insert stands between the parable of the sower and its interpretation to the disciples. And in one way, maybe that's significant as it's set out. In other words, you can hear a parable, but in order to understand it, it's not just a given. But Jesus tells us what stands in between, as it were, the declaration of the parable, the giving of the parable, and the subsequent interpretation. And there we find some surprising details, to be sure, especially in light of modern interpretations of what is a parable and what can it teach us and how does it teach. In Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's commentary, 
I copied down a sentence or two that describes parables in context. The writers say the following, To the parables of our Lord, there is nothing in all languages to be compared for simplicity, grace, fullness, and variety of spiritual teaching. They are adapted to all classes and stages of advancement, being understood by each according to his spiritual capacity. And notice in that commentary first, there is an exaltation to the Lord for the beauty and the immeasurable depth and the glory revealed in parables. To the parables of our Lord, the writers are saying, there is nothing, and indeed there is nothing in all language, the English language, any language ever written, any literary form outside of Scripture itself, there is nothing that can compare to the depth of glory and riches hidden inside the parables of Jesus Christ. They are, yes, simple, yet also profound. There's grace, fullness, and a variety of spiritual teaching there that if you and I spent the rest of our attention and all our intellectual pursuits and energy to just uncover the riches of these seven in this chapter alone, I propose to you that there is enough of a wellspring there to keep us spiritually fed from now until when Christ would call us home. And they are timeless. Indeed, they can be understood cross-culturally, cross the stages or epochs of history, and they will continue to be relevant forever, even as they were relevant to the people that Jesus was teaching to, such that I find Jameson and Fawcett and Brown, their commentary, to be exactly correct. All classes and stagements of advancement It doesn't matter who you are, your socioeconomic condition, or what stage of history you find yourself reading the parables, or even your pedigree or understanding or scriptural background, if the Holy Spirit illuminates them to you, they are indeed saturated with glorious revelation. But notice with particular interest this last phrase as they write, and this will really set a theme for much of our message today. They are, that is, these parables are understood by each according to his spiritual capacity. R.C. Sproul says something similar. He says, most of Jesus' parables are clear, but they also contain a depth of meaning that only one with a right relationship to Jesus can comprehend. You cannot understand a parable of Jesus, until you are in right relationship with Him. You might think you understand it. You might find them to be entertaining in some way. You might find them even to be worthy of committing to memory or regular reading. But Jesus Himself makes the point in Matthew 13, verses 10-17, through that the depth of meaning contained in the parables the meaning that is intended by their author, Jesus Christ, only one, only a person in right relationship with Jesus can comprehend. With that, let's read in the beginning of this discourse. We'll begin reading the parable of the sower in verses 13, or chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, and then let's follow reading verses 10 through 17, this theological interlude. Verse 1. That same day Jesus went out of the house 
and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Verse 7, other seeds fell among thorns. The thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. A key phrase. He who has ears, let him hear. The question then stands, implied at this point, who has ears? Would everyone in the crowd think about this picture? The masses and the throng is so great that it is not immediately easy for Jesus to separate Himself by standing on a small hill or finding a pulpit of some sort. So what happens? The throng is a mass. They're crowding around. And Jesus is separated from the crowd to address them from a boat. There has to be a sea of humanity lined up on the shoreline of the sea upon which He stands in the boat to preach. Thousands, we might guess, are there assembled to hear Jesus preaching. But as he shares these words, he says, He who has ears, let him hear. If the only purpose of preaching, if the only purpose of the Word of God was to communicate on a human-to-human level propositions, reasoning that can be understood, we would have to judge Jesus' sermon a failure. But there is something more, and there is something sovereign connected to the Word of God, which activates it for the hearer. You see, today, man considers something valuable, information, if he understands it on his terms, in his way, with the tools and faculties that he is born with, that he is given. But what does Scripture itself tell us about the way that we are born? Scripture itself says that we are born wicked transgressors, sinners, without the spiritual faculties necessary to process truth. So what are we missing? The perfect sermon? The perfect way to articulate it? The best possible illustrations? Do we need it in parable form? Do we need it in a song? Do we need it in a movie? Is it for lack of creative presentation that so many people remain lost in this culture? No, it is not for lack of creative presentation. It is not for lack of the basic appeal resonating with the reasoning of fallen man. It is not for the lack of the church not being able to keep up with technology or Hollywood. It is not for lack of playing to the affections of a man, a typical individual born today, that wants to be entertained and brought along for the experience, not the truth. So what do we lack? We lack ears to hear. Jesus says, He who has ears, let him hear. I would have you notice 
that his disciples were with him in all of these throngs, but even those closely associated with Christ, in something of a relationship, though not fully developed yet, his disciples still needed help to understand what in the world Jesus was saying. And so we find this record in verse 10 and following. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to one who has, more will be given, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Verse 14, Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Verse 16, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, Many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And then in verse 18, Christ goes on to explain patiently, graciously, with the disciples the parable of the sower, which we'll consider in some depth at a later time. A heading for you. Under the title, The Secrets of the Kingdom, this message really raises interesting points in verses 10 through 17. And these were the ones I've listed in order that occurred to me. The heading is, according to Christ's own commentary, parables are the following. Number one, they are a language, a language of the elect. Number two, they are a polarizing device. Number three, they are a prophetic reality. Number four, they are or they present an either-or proposition. And number five, they are, as they appear here in Matthew, a special revelation milestone. First of all, a language of the elect. When we think of language, we think of the ability to communicate that two individuals share. Jesus is communicating a spiritual language. But if the hearers do not have the ability to communicate, then they cannot share in the ideas that are being presented. Now, there, are, there is a communication that may happen on one level. But I tell you, it is only superficial. You may hear words in your language if you speak English. But the most important truths that speak not to just the surface level understanding, but cut through the dull heart of a sinner, will be missed unless the speaker, Jesus Christ, 
and the hearer, his disciple, speak the same spiritual language. He who has ears, let him hear. The disciples asked him, why do you speak in parables? Perhaps we could rephrase that. It's similar to a question like this. Why do you speak to them in this language? And Jesus answered them in verse 11. To you, that is to the disciples, to the elect, to those who are in relationship with me. Remember, Sproul's quote, most of Jesus' parables are clear. But they also contain a depth of meaning that only one with a right relationship to Jesus can comprehend until He has called us His own. Until He has set us apart as His disciple, we cannot hear the language of the kingdom. The secrets of the heavens, of, of the kingdom of heaven, remain a foreign language to us. They remain a concept that we cannot grasp. Jesus says to the disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, meaning again those outside of that relationship with Him, it has not been given. There are many misconceptions, I would say, of parables today. We ask ourselves in the church, the modern church, what is the benefit of a parable. We think of a parable as a story used to illustrate a truth. And how many times have you heard, probably as many as I have, that even Jesus spoke in parables. Therefore, we should color our sermons, jazz them up with illustrations, pictures, and stories that can communicate to people truth. But notice that this is not, indeed, a biblical understanding or conception of what a parable serves to do. And it has been said that a parable serves a dual purpose. One purpose is to reveal, and one purpose is to conceal. For those who did not have eyes to see or ears to hear, the parable, in fact, encrypted into a language they could not understand the truth of an Almighty God. It actually concealed, and we'll find later, as judgment, the truth from those whose hearts were obstinate and hard. Yet the second purpose of parable, for those in right relationship with Christ, is to reveal. And this is what Jesus is getting at here. These are not mere illustrations to hold our attention or to draw us in on our terms. But instead, it's far deeper than that. There's another a book someone gave me one, at one point. The idea of parable, the idea of the Word of God and the purpose that it served in God's sovereignty as it relates to the gospel is the ideas today are all over the map. And the book I received a couple years ago, someone said, why don't you take a look at this? It really blessed me. Illustrated as much. And the book was called Jesus, the Pedagogue of the Oppressed. Pedagogue means a teacher, like teaching especially as to children, people who are novices at a particular subject. And the subtitle was Parables as Subversive Speech. And the whole thesis, I'm sure it was an intellectual thesis from a seminary that has left the centrality of Scripture that was considered a great work of intellectual you know, aptitude by its author. The whole thesis was that Jesus spoke in parables so that the poor people would understand, 
to rabble-rouse and to get them unified as a social movement to throw off the oppressor. That's just one example of the many varied, faulty misconceptions of what parables exist to do that we have out there today. I say again, they're not mere illustrations. They're not just speaking on our terms for a generation with ADD who can't hold their attention to things that matter. No, they are underscored. They are to underscore this fact that only one in a right relationship can understand the deeper truths of God. That is, one in a right relationship with the Lord. This point is only made stronger in the parallel sections of the Gospels. You don't necessarily need to turn there, but let me read for you just a couple verses briefly from Mark. In Mark chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, we read, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. That is shocking language to the equal opportunity mindset of the typical American who relates everything through a process of everyone deserves everything equally. The average American consciousness is colored by this idea that how dare you discriminate. And between individuals, sometimes with the sordid history of this nation, discrimination has been a great evil. But let me tell you something. A sovereign, holy God has the right to discriminate. When I say discriminate, I mean separate what is holy from that which is not. To call out by His sovereign power, by His grace alone, vessels prepared for mercy. I do not understand why God has ordered it so in His providence and sovereignty that He would reach an unlikely soul like yourself or me and give us ears to hear. Nevertheless, we cannot deny it in Scripture that parables and indeed all the Word of God understood at the heart level is the language of the elect. People don't arrive at an understanding of God through going to school. They don't arrive at an understanding of God through a creative sermon. People arrive at an understanding of God when He sovereignly moves on their heart to hear. He answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. If the point weren't clear enough, in Luke we read again, These fearful thoughts, these fearful truths, when I say fearful, I mean that we need to ascribe God the glory He deserves for reserving the right to whom and at what time He reveals Himself. He said, Luke 8.10, speaking of Christ again, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And then he goes on in that section to explain the parable 
of the sower again. Thirdly, as a language of the elect, the title of this message comes into view as a mystery. What are the secrets of the kingdom of heaven? Well, they're referred otherwise in Scripture to as mysteries. 1 Corinthians 2.6, Ephesians chapter 3. These mysteries are things that Paul describes as hidden in ages past, revealed in, in small part at times of God's providential, sovereign will and choosing. Things that Jesus spoke and things that remain indeed a mystery until the Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. According to Christ's own commentary, parables are a language of the elect. Number two, parables are a polarizing device. Polarizing means to separate by two poles, according to two poles. We see this language in Scripture, this concept of separation, dividing between, discerning between that which is evil and worthy of judgment and that which is set apart and made holy. Ultimately, this picture takes its most dramatic form in the judgment day when the sheep are divided from the goats. And those who have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ wearing right robes are separated for glory from those who are condemned to hell eternal because of their heart condition. And the parables, as Jesus spoke them, and, in their, and properly understood, actually serve as a separating or a polarizing device. Notice as we continue to read in verse 12, For to the one who has, more will be given. And he who will have an abundance, and he, and he excuse me, will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because, again, seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. I mentioned earlier that by modern evaluation standards, we judge often the success or the value of a ministry by its growth numerically. We look at a church that seems to be busting at the seams, And we often don't analyze too deeply the quality of proposition that's coming from the pulpit. Today we live in a day and age that is consumer-driven by a different value set than Scripture. And we find ourselves conforming to what the hearer wants to hear, rather than saying things that might make him even more angry. The sinner comes to the table, as it were, of a church and says, I demand such and such a meal. I want it sugar-coated, frosted flakes. I want it served exactly so. And if you don't present it as such, I reserve the right to dust off my feet and to leave. We've mentioned that, in truth, when the gospel is actually presented, the tables are exactly turned. Jesus said to His disciples, In Matthew chapter 10, I commission you to bring the message of the kingdom of God. And if it is not received, as I deliver it, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Reject your idols. Place your faith in Christ. If that angers, upsets, or offends the man, the sinner out there in culture, 
And what is a disciple to do? He is to dust off his feet and to move on. In this way, the gospel correctly spoken is a polarizing device. It is meant to separate the sinner from the holy, to show him his weakness, his frailty, and his depravity in light of an awesome God. And if he responds to that by the power of the Holy Spirit drawing his attention to the truth, it allows him the correct conditions to evaluate the wickedness of his soul and to surrender to the mercy of an almighty, holy God. The gospel is meant to be preached this way. The, prov- the parables were preached in this way. They were not, they were not meant to create a coalition between those that really don't want Jesus Christ, but would, would tolerate the church if we didn't emphasize the doctrine so much. The parables aren't meant to create a coalition between a lustful culture that cares more about their experience and about things that appeal to their senses than they do what a holy God requires. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 12, it has already been revealed to us prophetically from the mouth of the precursor to Jesus Christ's own ministry. In John the Baptist, what Jesus would be like. 3.12 reads, His, that is Jesus, winnowing fork is in His hand, and He will clear His threshing floor and gather His wheat into the barn. But the chaff He will burn with an unquenchable fire. We've mentioned before there, The picture on the threshing floor is the good and the bad together. And later we see it again in the parables even in this section. But what is the chaff worth to the baker? Nothing. It needs to be separated in order for that which is going to be the ingredients for bread and nutritional value can be maintained exclusively. So the fork goes under the whole mass and the wind and that winnowing fork becomes tools to polarize to separate the chaff from the wheat. And here we see when we apply who Jesus was and what His ministry would do to what parables are, we find in parable a verbal winnowing fork. That is a literary or a verbal separating tool. Again, verse 12, For to the one who has, more will be given. And he who has an abundance from... From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So here in the, in the purpose of parables, we see a separation. And those who have ears to hear become more blessed. But those who are obstinate to the message, who lie outside of relationship with Christ, become even more confused and indeed even more angry. And as the gospel progressed, that's exactly what happened. I'm making the case from this message here that this principle of the gospel as a polarizing device or parables as a polarizing device is a greater principle and it should be applied to preaching as well. For further evidence in that regard, 2 Corinthians 2 verses 14 through 17, Paul is declaring what the gospel is like to this church. It's the same message, he says, but there's two aromas. It's the same word spoken, but in depending on the predisposition of the hearers, it's a fragrance of one 
from death to death, and to the other from life to life. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And so you find with the apostles, they understood the polarizing effects of the gospel. And they were not willing to be mere peddlers, that is, bringing to market a product that the demographic would be willing to pay for. Instead, they were men of sincerity, listening to the Great Commission, to the commission of Matthew chapter 10, commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ, and thus they knew they would bring the same message to those who are hard of heart and those to whom the Holy Spirit had prepared. To one, it would sound like death. To the other, it would sound like life. I've asked this question by way of illustration before. Well, what if you were sleeping and just trying to catch a siesta on a summer afternoon on a Sunday and I had one of those bullhorns with a siren on it, and I came up to your ear, and I pulled the trigger. And I was going to make the noise, mimic it, but I'll spare you. Why do I want to spare you? Because it's about the most annoying thing you can possibly imagine. I mean, in your subconscious, you might not even feel guilty for punching the guy in the face. You could always say, I was half asleep, right? Get back to your sleeping if you could. The siren, when the man does not sense the emergency, is the most annoying sound, and he hates it. However, if there's a tornado just miles from your house, and that siren goes off, it is the most valuable sound you can hear in that moment. And you see the difference between the two? The one man does not sense the emergency. The other individual knows it is appointed to man once to die and after that the judgment. That heaven and hell are real and there is an accounting. And so for the heart that knows that there's a holy God of whom, to whom they will give an account one day, the siren becomes the most gracious sound they have ever heard. What are parables to us? Are they the sirens sounding the emergency? Listen to the word of God. It is the anchor for the soul and the sea of sin. It is the rescue ship coming to take us from the maelstrom of certain judgment. Or are they an annoying interruption or an otherwise comfortable life? Do not take the siren out of the gospel. Do not take the proclamation of alarm out of the message of truth. The parables, the gospel, are meant to be polarizing by design. One message, two aromas. According to Christ's own commentary, the parables are a language of the elect, 
a polarizing device, and thirdly, a prophetic reality. In chapter 13, again of Matthew's Gospel, verses 14 and 15, we read, As to the answer why Jesus uses parables, He says, Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You'll indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and their ears they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 6 just briefly. Isaiah is often quoted in Jesus' ministry as the prophetic word that foreshadowed, that announced aspects of Christ's ministry. In Isaiah chapter 6, we remember the circumstances. This is where Isaiah himself encountered the holiness of God and received his own calling. Verse 8 reads, And I heard the voice of the Lord, Isaiah, recounting in the first person, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said that as Isaiah answered that voice, Here am I, send me. And he said, that is the voice of the Almighty, announcing the sovereign call of Isaiah. He said, Go and say to this people, verse 9, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? He said, Until, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, It will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains. When it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. I wanted to read a couple extra verses because in the context there, you have the planting analogy coming to the fore. At this time, the holy seed is its stump is the language there referred to. The people of God will come under judgment. Isaiah will preach the truth. But it would only make them angry. And in their anger and hardness of heart, it will hasten the day of judgment. And thus the Lord will be vindicated by bringing deserved destruction on this people. Parables, the gospel, Isaiah's proclamation, they are all unpopular by definition. It is impossible in a sinful world to bring a popular message The only way that a message becomes popular is among a subset of those whose hearts have been awakened, whose eyes can now see the wretched condition of their heart. And thus, when they hear the siren of truth, it is a welcome sound announcing certain peril, but also a vehicle of rescue. This message that Isaiah was to bring was a message of the Word of God But it was not a message of hope as we sometimes consider a message of hope. It was a message of judicial retribution. This week I was talking to a couple, a precious couple, and 
they were telling me in their experience that if you go to a city like San Diego, it is like finding a needle in a haystack to get a church, regardless of where you go, that will preach the Word of God. Because the culture has such a stranglehold on those who ostensibly name the name of Christ that churches have become nothing more than a coddling session for the sinner. They told me the story of one individual, a pastor from Wisconsin who is desirous of preaching the Word. And in the course of his ministry there, he had systematically, after the end of a few years, knocked on every single door in his community. And not a single home was represented in his church. He had knocked on every door, inviting them to come and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at every threshold was rejected. The same individual felt later in life a calling to go over to New Guinea. And he said the moment he stepped off the boat onto that island, he was greeted by throngs running from their huts to congregate on the beach, celebrating that finally the man of God had arrived who could set them free from the bondage and from the horrific demonic oppression that they had been living in their whole lives long. What is the difference between the people of Wisconsin and those natives in New Guinea? Overseas, they had ears to hear. Should the message be brought in both cases? Yes. But for one, it's a message of retributive judgment. We continue to preach the gospel, though no one, virtually anyone in Cross Lake, wants to hear. But God will be glorified either in judgment, according to the word that we pronounce, or He will be glorified in softening some and ransoming them along with us into the fellowship of the Beloved. But make no mistake, success ought not to be judged by the size of the church, but instead by the quality of the proclamation. What are we saying? Are we preaching the prophetic reality that Isaiah announced before and Jesus reiterated in His ministry? And the apostles were faithful in their legacy, announcing, repent, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And if you reject this message, it is to your detriment, and you will be responsible for it. And don't be surprised if judgment comes swift when you least expect it. We need to be preaching like this. What does the gospel look like in, for instance, an abortion-tolerant society? Just another quick illustration to you. So long as this country tolerates abortion, and this is just one evil among myriads, so long as it does not really ruffle the feathers of the consciousness of the American public all that much. Now 40 years running since Roe v. Wade, we have a real problem. And we can expect that the result of good gospel preaching, so long as issues like that betray the obstinance of heart, will be a message of judicial retribution against a culture so hard of heart. Two weeks ago, I watched a documentary called Babies Are Murdered Here. 
the theme of the documentary came from a sign that was created that created also a stir. Simple, handwritten sign, three feet by three feet or so with a sharpie, by one individual or a few who are committed to the cause of Christ. Babies are murdered here. And then went and very uncomfortably yet faithfully day after day stood in front of one of those places where little children, innocent lives, are systematically killed day after day with the legal sanction of the offices of authority in our land unchecked day after day. As you might imagine, that sign created quite a stir. In the documentary, there was clips of women who were going in, some cases men accompanying them, and you have never heard such vile language in your life. And the irony of what they had to say in between the cuss words was even more shocking. They would come up into the faces of these individuals and they'd say, Why don't you go out and do some community service? Why don't you go do something good for society? How blind must you be? How deaf must you be? How obstinate must your heart be when a society has that kind of response to people simply telling the truth? In God's inarguable word, it is always a sin to murder. What do we say when we bring the gospel to aspects of culture like this? Do we say things like in every abortion there are two victims, the baby and the mother? Characterize it that way? Or do we tell the one who lines up for abortion, the doctor who's responsible directly for the act, and all others who are complicit with this atrocity, that in it indeed is premeditated murder? You see, the prophetic reality of the gospel demands of us a sharpness of truth that will be uncomfortable to the hearer until their hearts change. Jesus says that his message will be received in one of two ways. People will hate him or people will turn and be healed. Jonah brought this message to Nineveh and the whole city turned and was healed. God might be pleased to do something like that in our land, but it doesn't change the right thing for us to say. Parables are a prophetic reality. Number four, parables are an either-or proposition. There's an appeal to the spiritual sense perception that a parable makes, and if that sense perception is not there, then the parable is rejected and the hearer remains in his sins, unawakened to the truth. In chapter 13, verses 15 and 16, the second half of 15, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Verse 16, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The spiritual sense perception of the hearer is really basic. Are they dead or are they alive? We are dead in our transgressions and sins, 
until we have been regenerated. But if there is grace at the hearing of the gospel to turn and be healed, then a miracle has taken place. You see, a parable is not ambiguous. It is an either-or proposition. And by extension, the gospel and biblical narrative and the whole message of God's Word is not ambiguous. It's not unclear. It is an either-or proposition. You either have ears to hear or you do not. You either have eyes to see or you do not. You either have a heart that understands or you do not. You either repent and are saved graciously unto life eternal or you're judged forever for your hardness of heart. The calling of the parable is the calling of the gospel for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, to repent, to turn and be healed. It's become a cliche now. but One of my favorite phrases is also the title of a message by one of my favorite preachers, Spurgeon, turn or burn. You might have heard that phrase overused and practically a cliche now, but that was the actual title of a message spoken by one Charles Spurgeon, turn or burn. And that is the truth that the parables and the gospel bring. There is no wishy-washy middle ground. There is no maybe, kind of, almost, I'm not sure, I can see where you're coming from. It is clear, an either-or proposition. And finally, according to Christ's own commentary, point number five, parables are a special revelation milestone. A special revelation milestone. Reading 13 verse 17, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. As we close this message on a more hopeful note, one that ought to inspire us to rejoice in the joy of our salvation Consider yourself as the audience of these parables most privileged. Isaiah, we read in his we read in his account of God's calling him, and we read of him here today that he was a man of God who received revelation from the Almighty. But this verse is telling us by Jesus' own words, Truly I say to you, you believer whose eyes have been opened to the truth of Jesus Christ, many prophets, even Isaiah and righteous people, longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. That is to say there was a level of understanding, a degree of revelation that the prophets had before Christ came, and that the hearers had when they spoke, that were soft of heart, But it has been exceeded. It has been now surpassed by more powerful and glorious proclamation of truth. You see, the special, that is, divine revelation from God to man is moving through the course of redemptive history and it's escalating with power and with glory. What was a whisper and a shadow and a type, what was a symbol and a prefiguring in the old, is now a fulfillment and a proclamation and an established reality and truth in Christ in the New Testament. And here we are, born at this particular time, 
with the benefit of the Word of God, the fulfillment of Jesus Christ, and the knowledge of the parables in our ears as the most privileged of all peoples, in one sense you could say, because that which former generations did not have the ability to see, this many years of God's faithfulness, and this completed work of His revelation to us in the Word of God, And even today, the loving kindness of God extended to us His steadfast love that truly reaches to the heavens and indeed reaches all the way from the cross to this date in history, 2014, May 18th. This tells us so much about our God. Glorious truths, ones deserving of worship. When we hear the parables in our ears, it ought to inspire us to overflow in worship adoration, exaltation, and praise because we are privy to things. Our attention has been brought to bear to the glorious proclamation of Jesus Christ that even the prophets of old only saw a glimpse of. Let me give you just four brief categories to use when you're assessing special revelation in Scripture. Number one, predestination. Number two, prototype. Number three, personification. And number four, perennial. I just offer those to you as a study guide. Briefly, let me use one example. In Genesis 3, verses 22 through 23, as Adam and Eve are exiled from the Garden of Eden, it is brought to the the attention of the reader that within the Garden of Eden remains the tree of life. Yet a sword of judgment bars the door, as it were, because if Adam and Eve were to partake of the tree of life, They would be cured of their sin. They would live forever. So there is, as it were, in this picture form, predestined plan of God for the healing of the sin-dead soul. Yet it's barred by the gate of judgment. This, in special revelation terms, was a hint. It was a foreshadowing. It was something. It was a glimpse of predestination, of God's plan for redemption. We picked up on this planting analogy of trees in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 33 and 34. You can pick up on it again. In that section, there's a prophecy that comes forth from Isaiah as a representative of one of God's own called to deliver the next stage of special revelation. We move from that picture of predestination in the Genesis record to the prototype A shoot shall grow out of the stump of Jesse. You see this imagery of plantings, trees springing up, of a branch that that is prophesied that would come out of the line of Jesse. We have the prototype in David as the king of old. We have the prototype in the lineage of David. But then we have number three, the personification in Jesus Christ. Who does Jesus Christ say that He is in John 15? He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in Me, as you recall, bears much fruit. You'll notice the first three parables in Matthew chapter 13 all have to do with plantings. It's a sower, it's a seed, it's wheat growing with tares. It's a small mustard seed that flourishes into a tree that houses as a refuge the birds of the air that make their nest from furthest 
reaches imaginable to find refuge in this planting, in this tree. Christ is the personification of this imagery. And finally, Revelation 22, verse 14, the perennial or the forever or the consummate example of this picture of tree in Scripture. Again, we see the tree of life that all in heaven partake of freely. And what is it for? It's for the healing of the nations. With the parables, we have a special revelation milestone. We have the personification of the law in Christ. We have the person as the fulfillment of the pictures of the old. We have the ceremonies established, fulfilled in Christ. And as he is speaking these parables, it is no mistake, it's by sovereign design that he draws on those imageries of old. More on that in the future. Much of this message, I hope, will lay groundwork for the rest of the chapter if we study it in subsequent weeks. In Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4, I want to read again in closing. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the word of His power, the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Hebrews 4, 1 through 4 provides us in that summary picture an interpretation of the significance of what Jesus calls the secrets of the kingdom in Matthew 13. The word of Christ speaks now a word of fulfillment, even fulfillment in himself. And let it be our prayer in closing today that God would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear, and a heart to understand that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the word of God of old and is our hope. And in Him, our eyes can be opened to see, and our ears open to hear, and our heart changed to understand the whole of God's glorious revelation. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we do make it our prayer today that we would be the recipients of your sovereign touch, that you would grant us, as you did your disciples, eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray to everyone, I pray of everyone in this room that to us it would be given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Truly, Lord, if this word has sparked something of a desire, something of an interest. Lord, it's not too much of a stretch for us to consider that just may be a means the Holy Spirit is using right now to stir within us a desire to know and understand the truth of the Word of God. I pray that by your sovereign, resurrecting, regenerating, sanctifying, and glorifying power that you would spread the Word of your truth to hearts that have been softened by the Holy Spirit to hear, so that even in this day of great judgment, 
we may be privileged to disciple alongside of ourselves a remnant who is rescued from certain judgment and death, rescued to worship with us even in this assembly here and celebrate and learn with each passing moment that you graciously grant more secrets of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.